Thank you, Brad, and the entire choir for that. My friends, we believe and follow the word of the living God. So I invite you now to please take your Bible and turn with me to the scripture lesson this morning, which is taken from Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. If you don't have a Bible, uh, I encourage you to grab one of those red uh, pew Bibles in front of you. Or again, I'll start at chapter, Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Here now as God speaks from his word. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all his splendor, was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. A pertinent passage to me this morning, I suppose, and to all of us. Because I don't know if you've noticed this. But we live in a world that loves to worry. All right? Just think about it. How many times in one day do people try to make you afraid of something? How many advertisements are telling you that you're missing out on something because you don't have this product? How many radio shows tell you about how everything is falling to pieces? Would cable news or even the nightly news exist if they didn't have all of the space devoted to those stories about the next thing that's going to kill you or ruin your life or your future? On one level, all of that is about trying to make us afraid. Here's what I mean. I decided over the course of a week to make a list, a list of things that either I worried about or that someone somewhere on television or the radio or the internet or a billboard told me that I should be worried about. And this is a partial list. Um, I should worry about work, what people thought of me, climate change, my wife's health, my health, religious freedom, crime, antibiotic-resistant diseases, my children's health, money, that noise my car was making, the extinction of honeybees, terrorism, how our church is doing, that Hillary Clinton's impending election would end democracy, and that Donald Trump's impending election would end democracy, 
an earthquake striking the Midwest, bicycle accidents and car accidents, poisonous spiders living in the walls of your house, and people dressing up as creepy clowns to terrorize children. The last of which legitimately gave me a nightmare that night because I watched the movie It when I was like eight years old and ever since then have been left with scars and about clowns. But that's just a partial list, right? And we laugh about that, but it's also something that affects us. That we are encouraged to worry about all of those things, and that has an impact on us. Indeed, it's sometimes noted that there's this irony to our lives because we live in one of the safest and healthiest and wealthiest times and places in all of human history, but we worry all of the time, maybe even more than we used to. We're afraid. And even if you remove the sense of this immediate stuff, the drumbeat of the media and news and things like that, we are still going to be anxious people, like Jesus' hearers were. People worry a lot about money, about our children, about our health, about how we're doing in life. We lose sleep, we lie awake, and we think about everything bad that could happen. We stress about conversations that we had, worried that we didn't say things quite right. And all of that means that we really need Jesus' words this morning. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry, is how he starts off this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Fear and worry is actually one of those things that the Bible addresses a lot, but I don't know that we always spend a lot of time reflecting on. So God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control, it says. Do not be anxious about anything. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Cast all your anxiety on God because he cares for you. Over and over, scripture sounds this note. And that should mean two things to us. One is that it should teach us that this is an area that we need to be aware of and fight in. Worry can be one of those invisible sins or invisible struggles right? That we look fine on the surface, even though it's sort of eating away at our hearts. At the same time, just saying that doesn't solve the problem, does it? Just saying don't worry isn't enough. In fact, if you're somebody who's prone to anxiety, it's probably just going to make you worry that because you are an anxious person, you are somehow failing in that as well, and so you'll be worse off than when you started. What I love about Jesus's words here is that he doesn't just give us a naked command not to worry, but he seeks to enter into the struggle with us and to teach us why, to take away the power of our worry and show us a better way. In particular, I think that he gives us two truths in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. He shows us in this text that our anxiety is futility and that God's providence is extravagant. That our anxiety is futility and that God's providence is extravagant. And he uses those two realities to call us to a better way. So let's look at each of those things in turn. The first thing Jesus tries to do is show us that our anxiety is futility. To to pull back the curtain on worry itself and show us that it just isn't worth what we make of it. In the first place, he says, worry can't change our circumstances. It can't change our circumstances. So look at verse 27. 
He says, can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Which is actually a pretty rough statement if you think about it. It's one of those classic Jesus blunt moments where he says, in essence, look, you're going to die. There is some specific moment in the future where you will cease to exist and nobody, no matter how much they worry, is able to change the fact that that moment is coming. Which is a hard word. But it's also, in some ways, at least for me, a freeing one. I mean, have you ever gotten, you've been waiting for some news about something, like a diagnosis or a situation, and you got the news, and it's really bad news, but you still felt some sense of relief, even though the news is awful that some part of your heart feels better? That's because, even though the news is bad, it takes away the uncertainty. That you know what has to be done, or what can't be done, which means that you can kind of get on with living life in the meantime. And that's sort of how Jesus is viewing our ultimate ends of life. That it's going to happen, and so there's nothing you can do to change it. So don't try. Just get on with living in the in-between. Verse 34 also gets at this idea that worry can't change our circumstances. Jesus says, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself, Each day has enough trouble of its own. And again, this is straight shooting from Jesus, right? He's saying life is hard. Each day has plenty of trouble for itself. But he says, therefore, deal with what's in front of you, what you can change, and don't stress about the rest of it. Because it's going to come whether you're worried about it or not. And here's why I think that approach, even though it's a little bit hard-nosed, is helpful. We often confuse worrying about things with addressing things. That there are challenges in life, right, that you can address, and they are hard, and we do have to look at them. And like Jesus says, today's going to come with some troubles. But, but, so there are a million different things in the world that you can worry about, right? And there's this very narrow slice of them that makes sense to be thinking about. They concern me, and are right in front of me, and there's something that I can do about them. And it's all right, in a sense, to spend time thinking about those things, but that's only a tiny slice of them that concern me and are in front of me and that I can do something about. And most of the time I spend worrying is about things that are out of my control. I worry about the politics in Russia or the disappearing middle class or whether my children will be happy in 30 years or whether people in their secret heart of hearts like me. And I have basically zero control over any of those things. Vladimir Putin and the global economy and my children's futures and even what people think of me at the end of the day are ultimately outside of my control. And even the stuff that is in front of me, I worry about it more than is fruitful, right? Let's say that I have to have a hard conversation with a friend. And there is... Some, some things that you do as a part of worrying that are good and that you need to do. You pray about it. Pray about the conversation. Think through what you're going to say. Uh, make a plan. Emotionally prepare. And that's great. But that all gets done, and it's still days away, and I don't stop worrying about it, right? I start instead to fantasize about every possible course that the conversation could take, getting more and more outlandish. I stress about things that are impossible to know. I run over it again and again, getting more and more worked up. And here's the thing. None of that is actually preparing me for the conversation with my friend. In fact, if anything, it's probably making it worse because all I'm going to do is be more worried 
and less or and more sleep deprived when the conversation comes. And so what Jesus is saying is that we need to be mindful of when that line is crossed. When planning productively turns into futile worrying, and then we need to stop. But what does stopping mean? One of the most helpful ideas I've found practically in my life comes from the world of counseling and psychology, right? And it says that what you need to have in your head is this picture of that, that in your head there is this little voice, right? This little voice that is constantly talking. Can you relate to that idea? And, um, and the problem that many of us have is that we think that that little voice is just what we think, period. But the problem is that sometimes that voice is wrong, Right? And so, what those people would challenge you to do is to see that voice not as yourself, but as a voice that you can enter into conversation with, that you can dialogue with, that you need to listen to and analyze what it's telling you. And when it's wrong, say, no, little voice inside of my head, that is not the case. That is not true. That is not helpful. That's what Jesus is calling us to do with our worries, to be in a constant dialogue with ourselves, asking whether what we're thinking and what that voice is saying is productive or whether it's just futile anxiety. So anxiety is futility because it can't change our circumstances. But that's only part of how Jesus approaches it. He also wants us to see that our worry, our anxiety, is futile because it can't satisfy our deepest longings. That worry can't satisfy our deepest longings. Look at verse 25. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and your body more than clothes? In essence, he's saying, think about the things you worry about. How much do they actually matter? One of the reasons we worry is because we put more weight on things than they can bear. We think that happiness can come from our possessions. We think that meaning can come from people's opinions of us. We think that identity can come from our accomplishments as parents or professionals. And because of this weight, we get really stressed about those things. The newest model of car or phone comes out and we stress that we don't have it and there's some happiness we're missing out on. Or we have that conversation with someone and we lose sleep because if it doesn't go smoothly... We're worried that we as a person will be defined by our failures. The truth, of course, is that none of those things can give us what we're looking for them to give. You can have all the wealth in the world and be miserable. That Everyone can love you and you can still feel like life is meaningless. You can have perfect kids and a stellar career and nail everything, but they aren't enough to hang your sense of identity on. And so Jesus is basically saying... You need to chill out a little bit about those things. But don't stress the smaller stuff. That None of that can fulfill you on the level that you're looking for it to fulfill you. One of the ways that worry takes over our lives is through what people who study it call catastrophizing, right? Catastrophizing, which is taking whatever it is you're worried about and then coming up with the worst possible outcome. So it's, it's like, imagine that you had a conversation with like, let's say your boss at work, and you said something, and it didn't come out quite right, and you're worried that you might have offended them, all right? If you're like me, or most of us, our brains can do something like this. They can say, why did I say that? 
I bet my boss is really offended. I bet he's going to poison all of my coworkers against me. And then he'll fire me. And then I won't have a job. And I won't be able to get one because he'll call all the places I apply and poison them against me too. And then my spouse will leave me. And I'll lose my home. And I'll die friendless and alone. That's maybe a bit extreme. <laughs> but on some level, all of us do things like that, right? The gears in your head start churning, and you start with something relatively minor and end up feeling like your whole sense of purpose and identity in this world is threatened because you failed it. When we catastrophize, what we almost always are doing is making issues bigger than they deserve. And so what Jesus wants us to do again is to enter into that internal dialogue with the voice in our head. And when it starts unspinning that terrible scenario to just say, no, stop, that's crazy. (laughs) I'm not going to listen to that. That if my boss is offended, I'll apologize to him tomorrow. My boss's opinion of me is not the most central fact of my life or meaning or existence. It's not worth this level of freaking out. So Jesus wants us to recognize the futility of our anxiety, right? He does that. He kind of looks at our worry and says, it cannot get you where you want it to get you. But here's the thing. I don't think that's enough of an answer, right? We can recognize that, that our worry is kind of silly, but still very much struggle with it. And there are times when our worries aren't silly, right? When I have a cough while I'm laying in bed and I think that I might be dying, I'm probably being absurd. But there are situations where I might be dying, right? There are times we have to confront those things too. So what do I do in those times? Well, as much as Jesus' words here are about worry, even more than that, they are about God. Jesus doesn't just tell us that our anxiety is futility. He fights worry by telling us that God's providence is extravagant. God's providence is extravagant. In the first place, Jesus says, God is bountiful in his provision. He's bountiful. So look at verse 28. Why do you worry about the clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. I mean, have you ever stopped, right, to look at a flower? In college, I spent a few years actually um, working at a floral wholesale company that sold flowers to florist shops and spent a lot of time looking at flowers. And as much as they kind of blurred together in that job, they're also kind of incredible things, right? You, You look inside of them and there's all of these little veins and whirls of color and all of these ridges and little complexity. A lily or an orchid is like this little piece of art. And Jesus is saying, look for a moment at how incredible that flower is. And then he says, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, will he not much more clothe you? What Jesus is trying to get at in our hearts is that we have this wrong sense of the kind of provision that God gives in this world. That often, we, create creation, we treat creation as stingy. Like it's all scarcity and lack and want. And underlying that, we end up with this sense that God is stingy, that he only gives us the bare minimum to survive, if that. And so we worry and doubt him. But Jesus is saying that is just not how the world actually is. I mean, I mean, 
If I can wax for just a moment, just look around and think about it, right? There are, we tell kids that money doesn't grow on trees, right? But you know what does grow on trees is food. It actually just grows there and you can, you know, pluck it off and eat it. I mean, we live in a world where water, right, the most basic thing we need to survive, it falls from the sky. Like, you don't have to dig it up from the ground or mine it. It literally just falls, so much of it that we complain when it does. And speaking of digging and mining, right, you go do that, and what you find is like like diamonds and gold and jewels that, that all of the treasures in all of the world are just laying there, and you can just dig them up. I mean, or think about food, right? Jesus talks about food here. But have you ever thought about the just crazy feast that actually exists in this world? So we live in a world where there isn't just food, right? There is meat and bread and vegetables and fruits. And there isn't just just meat either, right? There are pigs and cows and chickens and sheep and turkeys and lobsters and tilapia and a bunch of other animals that we don't eat here. And it's not even just like a pig, but even that one animal, there's bacon and ham and ribs. Or, or if you don't eat meat, right? Fruit. I mean, do you know how many kinds of different fruit there are? Not just the boring stuff, the strawberries and bananas and blueberries and apples, but, but there are papayas and starfruit and durian and kumquat. And it's just, just imagine in your head for a minute that you just took all of those different things, right? All of the different breads and all of the different fruits and all of the different vegetables and meats and nuts and all the things that you can make from them, right? All of the stews and all of the casseroles and all of the, of the cheeses and wines, just that's all laid out on this table, right? That table would literally stretch for miles showing off that diversity of blessing that we have in this world. And what Jesus is trying to say to us is that we need to have the sense of that kind of bounty when we think about our world and our lives. That we don't live in a world where we barely scrape by on bread and water, but we live in a world where God bountifully provides for us. And so we can have hope in that. But we can still struggle to believe it. Still struggle to live into it. And then that's what Jesus, I think, addresses next in this text. Because it's not just that God is bountiful, he says. It's also that God is good. That God is good. So look at verses 31 and 32. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. That's the statement of God's goodness. It's not just that he's aware of our needs, right? He doesn't just say, oh yeah, Eric needs food to survive, huh? Jesus is saying that he is our perfect father, and just as any good parent who sees their children in need provides for them, God will. That idea is also central to verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Are you not much more valuable? The answer for Jesus is, of course, yes, you are valuable. That God cares deeply about what happens to us. And that he's good to us in his provision. I think there, this is really where the rubber meets the road for a lot of us. 
there are two mistakes we can make when we think about God, all right? Two beliefs, wrong beliefs we can have. One is that he isn't able to provide, and maybe that's what God's bounty is meant to challenge. This can happen sometimes to some people, the idea that God is limited for whatever reason, that he can't interfere, that he can't guarantee what he wants to will come to pass. And that's actually a pretty terrifying God to worship, because the last thing you want in the world is to pray to God, expressing some problem for him, and to hear from heaven a divine oops. And the God of Scripture is not limited in those ways, right? That's the foundation of Jesus' teachings about God's bounty. God is, to use the theological word, sovereign. He's in control. He's the powerful king of the universe. Over and over, Scripture teaches us that at the end of the day, God calls the shots. And we do need that truth if we're going to trust God, just like I need to know that someone will be able to catch me before I jump into their arms. But at the same time, while some of us do struggle with believing that God is sovereign, I think many of us have a deeper struggle. First recognized it in myself after our daughter was born, and we weren't sure if she would survive or not. And I never struggled in those days to believe that God was in control of the situation, that he could take her or or let her live as he willed, But what I struggled to do was to trust that in what he willed, God was good. I feel that way still, especially about Elizabeth's cancer. Um, It's fully within God's power to cure her tomorrow, or to have cured her already, and we don't know. And it's fully within his power to take her away. And he's the king, but my struggle is not to let that turn him into some kind of uncaring force, right? To believe that whatever he does, that he is doing it out of love and goodness. So how can I believe that? How can I trust that God is good? Well, the answer is not by convincing myself that God will do what I want. That is what some Christians do when they're confronted with that question. They think the blessed life means getting everything that you want, health and prosperity and success, and that God, is being, that God being good means that he's going to bankroll my desires. And that just isn't true. We've been given a number of um, books during Elizabeth's struggle with cancer, and a lot of them have been really good. One book, which is not from anyone here, it's from a friend of a friend back in Nebraska, so don't look around and worry, but um, one of the books that she was given totally did this thing. It, well, I'll name it because it ticked me off. It's called um, Healed of Cancer by Dodie Osteen, and it had plenty of fine advice about being positive and things like that, but it's... The thing about it was that it never allowed the possibility that you could be a solid, trusting Christian and die of cancer. It just didn't. Instead, she says, God is a loving father who wants his children healthy and happy. Over and over, she promises that if you really just believe and trust and pray and memorize the Bible, that the outcome is certain and you will be cured. And that is garbage. I can't tell you how angry that sort of talk makes me without saying things from the pulpit that I shouldn't. But it just isn't true of our world, right? There are faithful saints who faithfully walk with the Lord and die earlier than we feel that they should. There are Christians in Africa who are models of faith and godliness and humility who are born and live lives and pass away in poverty and struggle, while there are terrible people in America who have a whole lot of wealth and comfort. And it isn't true of the Bible. Paul prays that God would take away the thorn in his flesh, and God doesn't. The prophets live lives of faithfulness and persecution and end up getting martyred. 
Jesus dies in this story, right? So believing that God is good cannot mean believing that everything that happens in life is going to be good. At the same time, it also can't mean simply resigning ourselves to whatever happens. It doesn't mean not caring. There can be this kind of Eeyore approach to God's sovereignty that we can sometimes develop as an alternative. You remember Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh and his house falls down every, over and over every episode, bad things happen, and he says, oh well. And we can, we can do that sometimes with God's sovereignty too. Oh well, God so wills it. The Bible is full of people asking God for things and being told no, but their asking is never viewed as a problem. In fact, we're commanded to pray for healing, for justice, for God's kingdom to come in every circumstance, even though we know that it won't always happen the way we want it to. So if it isn't believing that God will only work what we want, and it isn't resigning ourselves to whatever comes, what does it mean to believe that God is good? How can we believe that? Well, there are two answers, I think, that we can find in this text. One of them comes from Jesus' words, and that is to change our hope. To change our hope. In verse 33, Jesus says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We have to be careful how we read that. Some of those people we mentioned earlier will twist a verse like that to mean you follow Jesus and then he'll give you all the stuff you want. But that can't be right because if it was, Jesus would have instead said, but seek food and drink and clothing and use God to get it. And that isn't what he is saying. He is saying to stop seeking the things of this world and instead to seek God's kingdom. So here's the thing. If my hope in my wife being healthy. Well, it's a good hope. It's an understandable one, but there's no guarantee of it in the present, and there's a guarantee against it in the long term, right? Everybody in the end has a 100% mortality rate. So if I hope in that, I'm going to be disappointed. But the hope that I am called to have is something much bigger than that. It is God's kingdom, It is his gospel and grace and peace and justice filling the earth. It is seeing that begin to happen in this age and seeing it fully happen in the age to come. And that hope, if that is the thing I'm ultimately hoping in, will be accomplished because God is at work doing it. And in the fullness of that kingdom, there is the life that I am truly hoping for. That if Christianity is true, then as heartbreaking as that reality about my wife is for me, and as heartbreaking as all of those hard realities are for us, that they're not the final word of the story. That life springs up again. That this is a story with resurrection at its end, resurrection and eternal glory. And so if my hope is in this life, it might last for a little while, it might last for most of it, but in the end it's going to pass. But if I fix my eyes there, then I can have hope in this fuller story where I won't always get what I want right now. But in the life, there is life and glory deeper than anything that I could ever hope for in the present. At the same time, there's another answer to our struggle to believe that God is good. Because that's important, to set our hope on those things that are true and endure, but it can still ring a little hollow. And that other truth 
is simply to remember Jesus. To remember Jesus. This is one of those things that you forget sometimes when you're preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. But think about who is saying these words. It isn't some wise sage. Neither is it some God distant in the heavens. But it is Jesus, God himself, come into our midst. I've noticed something as a parent, right? Sometimes I try to get my kids to clean their rooms, and, um, and they hate it. And they, they, they say, how could you do this to me? I hate you. You must hate us. And, of course, they get in trouble for talking to me that way, and they still have to clean their rooms. But, but there's something I've noticed that makes a difference, and that's that if, in that moment, I get down and start cleaning the room with them, then somehow all of their complaining disappears. Somehow having me beside them, even though they are still suffering through cleaning their room, um, (laughs) it makes it bearable. And that is the story of Scripture. That God doesn't just sit in heaven ruling things, but that he enters into his creation. He enters into suffering itself. That Jesus knows what it was like to suffer and to die. That the Father knows what it's like to lose a child. And that does not give me the answers that I sometimes want in life's hard situations, right? It doesn't let me say, oh, I see the lines, I see the plan, I'm fine with God's providence in this moment. But it does remind me that God is good. That he has to be, because no uncaring sovereign would stoop down with his subjects and suffer beside them. But a loving father would. So it is in these things in setting our hope on the kingdom, and in ultimately setting our eyes in Jesus, in which God himself suffers beside us, that we're able to believe that God is good, even when life is hard. And all of that, ultimately, is the place where our worry gets healed. This is really what Jesus is getting at. He shows us that our anxiety is futility, which means that it makes no sense to spend our time fixated on what worries us. And then he reminds us that God's providence is extravagant, that God is bountiful, even now, in his provision for us in the world, that he is even more bountiful in his coming kingdom, that place where we can fix his hope And that he is at his most extravagant and bountiful in Jesus himself as he comes into our midst and dies with us, beside us, for us. So that's the cure for our fears. It's not a solution to our circumstances, but it's something greater. A great hope in a great God beside which our worries shrink and begin to lose their power. We serve such a great and good God. So let's go out in hope in all that he provides. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I worry about so many things. um, And I acknowledge this. I pray that you would remind me of your goodness in this world and remind all of us. Pray that you would remind all of us of the goodness that is to come in your kingdom. I pray that you would remind all of us of your goodness, ultimately, in coming into our midst as a man. pray all these things in the name of that man 
very God, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Stand with me and sing.